Amen. Why don't we turn to the book of Romans, and while you're turning there, I don't know if you remember the warfare prayer that I read, I guess it was two weeks ago or so, a number of you wondered how you could get a copy of it. Well, we've ordered it from the Gospel Tract Society in Independence, Missouri. And uh, they charge $350 for, for shipping, and then just a, a free will offering, whatever you decide you'd like to give for however many you order. So we ordered 100 of them, which I did at our last church. And so we've got plenty available for you. Julie's got them, and she'll be, uh, 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 by the doors at the end of the service for anyone who would like the warfare prayer. So we're in Romans chapter three and we'll be looking today at verse, verses 27 and 28, but I'd like to back it up to where it all began in verse 21 in the most important paragraph in the Bible because these preceding verses um, that lead up to our verses for today are the answer to the question, really to the problem that is posed by our verses for today. Today we're gonna look at the solution to a really a Herculean problem that we all share. We'll start with the solution and then we'll unpack the problem that will give us a whole new appreciation for what God has done. Again, it starts in verse 21, but now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is all the solution. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That gets at the problem, but then he makes it more specific at the end. The solution being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then the root problem that all this solved. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from works that would have led to boasting. We're gonna see this week that there's something even more important under what we thought was most important last week. Last week we looked at what's most important or so we thought. We saw that under everything else, under all that Christ made possible, justification, redemption, propitiation, under the new identity that came from our justification and the new liberty that came with our redemption and the new serenity, if you remember, that came from our, God's propitiation, under it all is something deeper and better, if that be possible. And that is the Father's love where it all began, which is the wellspring of it all. And in particular, his forbearance. It all happened because as we read, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Last week, we saw that the source of it all, the source of our salvation is a love with such forbearance that saints down through the centuries were questioning God's righteousness, whether he was soft on sin. 
This week we'll see that the source of our salvation is a love that on top of this found a way to do the seeming impossible and that is to neutralize our pride. Where then is boasting? To neutralize the pride that would otherwise have kept us from receiving his love. Which is why Paul goes on to say this in the next verse, verse 27. Again, where then is boasting? This sums it all up. It is excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. None of this would ever have happened had God not taken care of this as his first order of business. Had he not uh, dealt with our pride. Had he not sabotaged the pride that would have sabotaged any attempt to save us. Had he not excluded all possibility of boasting. Someone once said that our search for God is really a search for the thing that's holding us back from responding to his search for us. And it's our pride that's holding us back from responding, ultimately. And more than anything else, it is pride. It's the one thing that keeps us from responding to his search for us, that comes between us and God more than any other thing, but it's so deceptive that we don't think, I don't think I've got pride. At least it's easy to think that way. The biggest barrier that had to come down, the greatest single obstacle that God had to overcome, even though we might not think it is, in his pursuit of us, was our pride. And we're gonna see today that God's gracious work in our lives can only continue as that obstacle stays down, but it comes back up so easily as we maintain what brought us to him in the first place, and that is a childlike simplicity of faith, a childlike humility of faith that brings us home to the arms of the Father where we can live, which is the wellspring last week, as we saw, of everything else. Because I dwell, he said in Isaiah 57, 15, in a high and holy place, but also with the lowly and contrite of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the church of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is so foundational to everything else that we'll be spending a whole message on it today because it comes at the very end, which in the Greek is the most important part of the passage. Where then is boasting? We'll be focusing on Paul's foundational conclusion about the plan of redemption that it made possible a foundational condition, a humble condition that's the wellspring of everything else that we're supposed to be and do. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. It's the same way that Paul concluded his famous summary of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's all over the place in Scripture as we now put this verse in the context of Scripture. So it must be pretty important. His famous summary of the gospel where he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Uh, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. This mirrors Romans 3. That so that no one may what? Boast. 
There it is again. It's what he said in 1 Corinthians 1.26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things which are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may what? boast before God. All of that was because pride is such an issue. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Christ my Lord, which is why Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians, by his, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, none of it comes from us, and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who, what? Boast, boast not in himself, but in the Lord. Somehow God waved a magic wand over all our pride and got through. More than we'll ever know this side of glory, it's our pride that separates us from God, not just before we become Christians, but afterwards, which is why we should never stray from the gospel. We're not only saved by it, we're sanctified by it, because the bad news of the gospel alone can bring us to our knees and keep us there. Our total depravity, that's the bad news, and keep us there on our knees, humbly in the arms of the Father's mercy, which we always need, where we should always be that we might experience the good news of the gospel, that we might be, become the good news of the gospel as, as we extend mercy to others. Which is another reason why what we've been through as a church over the last few years is so good because it brought us to our knees. It, it broke us of our pride and that needed to happen. So we'll look first today at the universality of pride at the problem and then uh, which will give us a whole new appreciation for the solution which will end with how the gospel brings on the humility of simple faith and how we can stay there. First, it's universality. We need some convincing. At least I do deep in my heart of hearts because I tend to think I'm kind of a humble guy to be quite honest. (laughs) Dealing with our pride is like playing whack-a-mole. Have you ever played whack-a-mole where, that the, where you're supposed to whack the mole whenever it sticks its head up out of one of the holes in front of you and uh, no matter how many t- times you hit it, it just keeps sticking its head up through a different opening. It just keeps coming up. There is one vice, wrote C.S. Lewis, of which no man in the world is free. One vice which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself or herself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about, he concludes, is pride. But I'm afraid that many well-meaning teachers, even in evangelical churches these days, will tell you just the opposite. 
That, that our real problem is not thinking too highly about ourselves, rather that we're too lowly, as in low self-esteem. It seems that the besetting sin of humanity is not pride after all. In fact, from what many are saying, it looks like we are suffering from an epidemic of humility. It's the myth of self-hate. It's a myth because it flies in the face of the scripture's clear teaching that pride is a universal human failure. Why else would Paul have written that no one should think more highly of himself than he ought to think? If that wasn't everyone's tendency. It's our basic tendency, if our basic tendency was really to look down on ourselves, why would he have said, by the grace given to me, this is the application to all that doctrine, he's saying, you need to do this or it's not gonna benefit you at all. By the grace given to me, he fingers one thing. I say to every man among you, Romans 2, 3, not to think of more highly of himself than he ought to think. Or Ephesians 5, 21, no man ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cares for it. That is a pretty sweeping generalization. So, what about the person who says, uh, say, I'm so ugly I hate myself? Have you ever heard that said? I sure felt it in high school when I was plagued with acne. Couldn't stand to look in the mirror. But think about it, if you really hated yourself, you would be glad that you were ugly. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be glad? We can be so self-deceived. You're so ugly, you hate yourself? Come, come. You're so angry about how you look, not because you hate yourself, but because you so love yourself. Why else would Christ have said that we should love our neighbors as what? As we love ourselves. It looks like he, anyway, had complete confidence that somewhere in our heart of hearts, we all love ourselves. Because you see, the person who's always putting himself down generally doesn't do it out of self-hate. No, he's just letting it slip that his appearance or performance or whatever is not measuring up to the godlike standard he's set for himself. Which is hardly a symptom of low self-esteem. No, it's the flip side of pride. And it just goes to show that the heart of man is more deceitful than all else. You and me included. Jeremiah 17.9. More often than we might like to admit it, self-hate is a cover-up for self-love. And we'll never really find our way home to the Father, as we talked about last week, with this in our heart of hearts. So bear with me a bit longer. We need to let this problem sink in so that we'll really personally appropriate the solution on a daily basis. Even non-Christians see the problem. The French journalist Frédéric Amiel wrote this way back in 1853. There are two sorts of pride, one in which we approve ourselves, the other in which we cannot accept ourselves. Or the great devotional writer A.W. Tozer back in 1950, boasting is an evidence that we are pleased with self, belittling is evidence that we are disappointed in it. Either way, we reveal that we have a high opinion of ourselves. This is like the most slippery of all the sins, and it comes under the most tricky of all disguises. As one man said, pride is not a virtue, but it is the parent of many virtues. That, that is, pride is often what makes us want to seem virtuous. That's sometimes the motive behind our trying to be virtuous, to look good in front of other people. 
That's why when we receive our rewards in heaven, it says the elders cast the crowns of their rewards before the throne. Because we'll see then the degree to which uh, what we did was motivated by impure motives. And yet in his grace, he'll still reward us. Pride is the parent of many virtues. It's like Pascal said, we do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves and in our own being before God. We rather desire to live an imaginary life in the mind of others. And for this purpose, we endeavor to shine rather than to shine for God. We labor unceasingly to absorb, to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence in the minds of others and we neglect the real. And pride can come under the humblest of disguises. It's like the Texas bumper sticker I mentioned a while back that says, humble and proud of it. Even the desire to excel at work or school or at some skill or sport is, is laced with pride. It usually is. It's like Solomon said, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Do I want to outshine you? This too is vanity and striving after wind, Ecclesiastes 4.4. Or maybe your brand of, <laughs> of pride is more like Garfield's. Remember Gar the cartoon Garfield, uh, uh, the cat? Remember the one where he's talking to his teddy bear, Pookie, and he's at the end of this endless monologue about himself, and he says, gee, Pookie, I'm tired of talking about me. Next frame. You talk about me for a while. <laughs> Do you talk about yourself too much? Telltale sign of pride. Or maybe you talk too much in general without drawing other people out. That, that can be a pride that presumes you're more important, what you think is more important, what you have to say is more important than someone else. Each year, the college board identifies the million or so high school students who take the, uh, the SAT test to tell them various things. It asks them, it surveys them, and asks them various things about themselves, including how they feel they compare with other people of, of their, uh, uh, their own age in, in various areas of ability. The results? Pride starts early. <laughs> In leadership ability, 70% of high school seniors rated themselves above average. 2% rated themselves below average. 60% viewed themselves as better than average in athletic ability. Only 6% rated themselves as below average. In ability to get along with others, this is just for one year, 0% of the 829,000 students responded that year rated themselves in the ability to get along with others as below average, 0%. 60% rated themselves in the top 10%. And 25% think they're in the top 1%. Another study, 94% of faculty think themselves better than their average colleague. Even among Christians. In fact, maybe especially among Christians. Too often pride, uh, the pride that can come out on the Christian right stinks to high heaven and everyone's smelling it but ourselves. As we point the finger at everyone but ourselves. You may have heard C.S. Lewis's famous description of religious pride. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear themselves to be very religious? 
I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks of the, uh, far better of them than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to God and get out of it a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow men and are, don't even realize it. I've told some of you about a friend of mine who was a, a pastor, the pastor at Calvary Church down in Longmont for like 25 years, Tom Hovestall. He's now with Interim Pastor Ministries. He was the first pastor I served under uh, 40 years ago. And so we're doing the same thing again. It's neat to be shoulder to shoulder. He was here in the service a couple months ago. But he published a book with Moody Press called Extreme Righteousness, a classic, subtitled Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. One of the chapters is titled When Rightness Leads to Wrongness. He talks about what he calls warning lights of self-righteous pride. He says that the number one sign of self-righteousness is a contemptuous view of others. Do I compare myself with others, he writes, and look down on pride, in pride on those who do not live as I do? Of course I do, he says, all the time. Tom is one of the most humble men I know, and yet by his own admission, he can be very self-righteous. It's a characteristic sin that we need to be aware of, especially on the Christian right. He continues, do I compare myself with others and look down on those who do not live as I do? Of course I do, all the time, and then listen to this. I rarely verbalize those thoughts or even acknowledge them to myself, but they are there. They surface in my secret reflections and in what I un utter under my breath. They come out in unguarded conversations about people not present, even my fellow believers in Christ. My contempt pops out in my prayers as I lament the evils of the culture more than I lament my own personal sin. It slips out in my conversation about failing parishioners and fallen fellow pastors. Is the contempt light flashing on your dash too? Francis Schaeffer was once asked, he fought all these battles against the contemporary culture and what was coming against Christianity. And someone asked, how can you keep your balance in the midst of all these battles? And he said, I always view that I'm, there's a dragon in front of me that I'm fighting, but there's also a dragon behind me. There's a lot there, but if the dragon behind us is a, uh, in front of us is a carnal culture, then one of the dragons behind us is a carnal contempt for a carnal culture and not mercy. And too many are being consumed by this dragon. Prideful contempt that stinks to high heaven rather than merciful compassion. Thank goodness God did not treat us that way. Where then is boasting? Well, where isn't it? It really is like whack-a-mole. And when it pops up, it's usually disguised. And so we don't even bother to hit it. And it's often invisible, so we don't even see it. That was God's problem under everything else. And if that's the problem, what's the solution? Well, it, this takes us from the universality of pride 
to what brings on the humility of simple faith that comes through the gospel. Not just when we were saved, but all through the Christian life. Back to verse 27 of Romans 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. How could that be? How can such an instinctive, such an entrenched attitude possibly be overcome? Well, reading on, it is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, by the law of faith. That is, by a completely new way of finding God that will give your pride nothing to feed on because it had nothing to do with you. It was in spite of you. Through the humility of simple faith. And what does that mean? Well, let's just stop right here on this verse. By the law of works, no, but by a law of faith. The solution to the problem, now that we've really let the problem sink in. These are words that thanks to Martin Luther and others rang through the cathedrals of Europe when he launched the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith. For we maintain, Paul says in verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is where Christianity parts company from every other religion. By the humility of a simple faith that truly repents of who I am and what I've done, that there's nothing good in me, and simply accepts who he is and what he's done. Unbelievable. At the heart of each and every other religion is some doctrine It's all of the devil that that far from shattering your pride will flatter it through something you do. There is no other philosophy, no other religion, no other ethical system, not a single pretender to the truth will do anything ultimately except exacerbate the besetting sin of humanity. It's like Spurgeon said, all other religions are do, do, do. My religion is done, done, done. Amen? All of them, the New Age movement, Judaism, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Islamic faith, Hari Krishnas, whatever, even some forms of Catholicism and, uh, and the social gospel of some Protestantism are based on a law of works that, in or- that only uh, enables a life of pride that will, that will inflate you. Or it's a cycle. Inflate you, then destroy you as you grope your way to God, tooth and nail, by what you do, 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 and then despair of ever doing enough. Christianity alone is based on the law of faith in what he has done, done, done. The net effect of which is first and foremost to neutralize our pride long enough for him to find his way to us and to save our souls. and to keep us in that posture for the rest of our lives as from then on we go back to the gospel every day. In the humility of simple faith, we rest in what he has done, done, done in the arms of the Father's mercy. And just what has he done? And how does that work? Well, let's back it up one last time and run through them, these magisterial words 
that begin in Rome in verse 21 that can change our lives as we let them sink in. This is the word of God I'm about to read that is alive and sharp and paragraphs and it's the most powerful paragraph in the Bible and God's word to boot. So listen to the truth that can set you free. It's the solution to the problem. Starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, that is apart from anything we do, to live up to some impressive standard. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, apart from what we do or who we are, we can be like God, his righteousness. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets we saw set the gold standard for righteousness, but they won't lift a finger to help you achieve that standard. So how do we achieve it? Even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It comes to all who believe when we truly repent of who we are and what we've done and simply accept who he is and what he's done. For all have sinned. It's called total depravity. Nothing to take pride in and fall short of the glory of God. It's level ground for all humanity, you and me included, at the foot of the cross. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That in and of ourselves we're phantoms next to the blaze of his glory. If we only knew. And so nobody's good by that standard. Except by faith in what he has done next verse. Being justified as a gift by his grace when he pronounced us not guilty in spite of our sin. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus when he set us free from sin. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith when he paid the penalty of our sin. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, bottom line? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, we'd boast in that. No, but by a law of faith. This masterstroke of the gospel. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And to all that we can only say, just like we sing, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God, save in what he has done, done, done. Conclusion? That's what brings us to the arms of the Father, which we saw last week is the wellspring of everything. C.S. Lewis said, we must not think of pride as something that God forbids just because he's offended by it, or that humility is something he demands as do his own delicate dignity, as if God himself was proud. He is not the least worried about his own dignity. Just look at the cross. The point is he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into touch with him, you will in fact be humble. And that's how we find him when he brings us low.
because I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with the lowly and contrite of spirit. That's the secret of revival in America. If my people humble themselves in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, Isaiah 57, 15. So how do you get there and stay there? How does it work in practice? More than anything else, it's the gospel that can bring us to our knees and keep us there. Well, a student named Brian Moore learned about this just before he died. He was a 17-year-old who died on May 27th, back in 1997, the day after Memorial Day. He was driving home from a friend's house when his car went off the road and struck a utility pole. But he, wa he wasn't hurt, but get this, when he got out of the car, he stepped on a power line that came down and was electrocuted. A few days after he passed away, his cousin was cleaning out Brian's locker at school, and he found there an essay that Brian had written for one of his classes, an essay titled The Room. It's the room where we need to stay. And his cousin learned that not only had Brian written it, he had read it aloud to the entire class a few days before he died. So they never forgot it. How do you hold your pry at bay? Well, the room is where you need to stay. Listen. I was in that place between wakefulness and dreams, and I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features except for the one wall covered with small index filed cards. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files stretched from floor to ceiling and stretched endlessly in either direction. As I drew near the wall of files, the first to catch my attention was a file uh, uh, drawer that read, Girls I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards. I quickly shut it. I saw that this lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my life. Here were written the actions of every moment, big and small, in a detail that my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me as I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet moments, others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to the one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some of the most hilarious, and uh, some were almost hilarious in their exactness. Things I've yelled at my brothers and sisters. Others I couldn't laugh at. Things I have done in anger. Things I have muttered under my breath at my parents. I never ceased to be surprised at the contents. Often there were many more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I had hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life I had lived at 17. Could it be possible that I had time, that I had the time in my years for each of these thousands or even millions of cards? But each card contained confirm this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting. Each was signed with my own signature. When I pulled out the file marked 
shows that I have watched. The cards were packed tightly, and yet after two or three yards, I hadn't found the end of this file. I shut it, shamed, not so much by the quality of the shows, but even more by the vast waste of time that this file represented. When I came to the file marked lustful thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took it at one end and began pounding it on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. I became desperate and tried to pull out a card, only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly hopeless, I returned the file to its slot. And then the tears came. I began to weep. Sobs so deep that they hurt. They started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. But then I turned around and saw him. No, please, not him, not here. Oh, anyone but Jesus. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. I saw a sorrow, though, far deeper than my own as he read. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one of them? But then, systematically, starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing at him. All I could find was to say no, no, as I pulled the card from him. His name shouldn't be there, it couldn't be, but there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written with his blood. He gently took the card back from me. He smiled a sad smile with such gentle eyes and began to sign the cards again. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant, it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, it's finished. I realized I was on my knees. He stood me up, and as I stood up deep in my heart, and as I walked from the room, I stayed deep down on my knees, boasting in him alone. How do you hold your pride at bay? <laughs> the room is where you need to stay in your heart of hearts. Where we do business with Jesus. It's where you say, my richest gain I count but loss. It's the place that pours contempt on all our pride. It's where you sing, forbid it, Lord, that I should both save in the death of Christ my Lord. As the worship leaders come forward again, the room is where you sing.
Now I belong to Jesus. Amen.